This is Your Morning Basket, where we help you bring truth, goodness, and beauty to your homeschool day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 70 of the Your Morning Basket podcast. I'm Pam Barnhill, your host, and I am so happy that you are joining me here today. Well, today we are chatting all about folk music and folk songs with our good friend, Professor Carol, Dr. Carol Reynolds. Now, this was such a fun interview. I really, really enjoyed getting to talk to Professor Carol about this. The wonderful thing about her is she is always so passionate and so excited about what she's talking about, and it makes it so easy to learn from her. And boy, did I ever learn. I learned so many things that I never knew about folk music. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and say, I think you are absolutely going to love this episode of the podcast. And we'll get on with it right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Your Morning Basket podcast is brought to you by Your Morning Basket Plus. Get the tools you need to put the joy back into your homeschool. If you have been wanting to do morning time in your homeschool, but you're a little overwhelmed at the idea of which resources to use or which books should you choose, we have done all the hard work for you. Your Morning Basket Plus is how you can get more out of your morning time with less work for mom. In the Plus subscription, we have over 42 sets of morning time plans that you can download and are open and go. We also have live events every month with some of your favorite morning time teachers, event replays, and so much more to add to your morning time. Now, we have just released our brand new monthly subscription option. Up until now, you could only get an annual subscription. That's still available and it's still your best deal. But if you would like a monthly option to get in and try the subscription out and see what we have available, you can find more information about that on the website. So come on over to pambarnhill.com, click the green Get the Tools button, and check out the Your Morning Basket Plus subscription today. And now, on with the podcast. Dr. Carol Reynolds is a uniquely talented and much sought after public speaker for educational conferences, art venues, and general audiences. A retired musicology professor from Southern Methodist University with a specialization in Russian and German area studies, she now combines her insights on history, the arts, and culture with her passion for arts education to create programs and curricula. She inspires concert audiences and leads art tours all over the globe. Professor Carol works much of the year as a professor on tours for Smithsonian Journeys. On her website, ProfessorCarol.com, she offers a variety of history and fine arts courses for students and adult art lovers of learning. Professor Carol, welcome to the program. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much for that nice introduction, too. Well, a lot you, in there. <laughs> yeah, there is a lot in there. Well, and you you have actually been with us before on an earlier episode of the podcast. And so you are a favorite guest. We love having people back on the show. So thanks. 
Well, thank you. And I'm very, very happy to be here. It's always your audience is wonderful, but you know that, of course. Yes. Oh, I do. (laughs) I do know that they are a lot of fun. And we're going to be talking today all about folk music and folk songs, which I think is something that they're going to be really, really interested in learning about. I'm kind of excited myself. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your personal connection with folk songs. Why do you love them so much? Well, you know, I'm going to preface this by saying that we have in our modern era a division in our minds, even in our practices, between music and folk music or concert hall music and folk music. That division has not always been there, and it isn't there. If you look around the globe, it is not there in all cultures. Uh, We see this as two separate rooms or two separate spheres. But if you go back historically, this division, is it's actually an artificial division. It has a little bit of usefulness, but it also keeps a lot of people away from a marvelous body of music that really belongs to them, their history, and their heritage. So having said that, uh, <laughs> I was brought up, okay, this is contradictory, because on the one hand, I didn't come up with that division, not in terms of a musical landscape. My father played hillbilly guitar. He was from West Virginia coal mines. And anytime he had free time, which wasn't much, he'd sit out in the backyard on the picnic table or in the winter, you know, in the living room and play the guitar and sing me what I now know and later learned was a, a glorious repertoire of important American folk songs. Many of them out of West Virginia, out of the coal mines, out of the hollows, Scottish, Irish, English origin primarily. I mean, you couldn't have, you could take a course in graduate school on the repertoire that he sang to me. And I just thought it was music. Did you come Mm. up with anything like that, Pam, in your life? Yeah. I mean, I don't remember a family member playing those songs, but I can remember uh, my mother played piano. And so there were these piano books of kind of these old folk songs and standards and things like that. And I can remember just learning all of these songs when I was growing up. So like I would pull out the piano books and play them myself even though I wasn't a pianist, (laughs) I just kind of, that's okay. (laughs) I pegged out the melody and then could sing them. And then I remember them from elementary school too. I guess along the way I had some really great music teachers who taught us, you know, uh, things like, uh, Oh, uh, the minor 49er. I can't even think of the name of it now, but I can remember learning those as a kid. Yeah. Well, and that's how one should. And I mentioned a contradiction because one hopes to learn it. And of course, in in the old days, which I seem to say a lot nowadays, um, <laughs> people would hear the neighbors. They'd hear people at church at, at the church suppers. They'd hear people at the at the festivals. They'd hear people down the block playing this music. The contradiction for me and maybe you have, or some of our listeners were also caught in this contradiction. And and that's why I said what I said in the very beginning, that it's an artificial division, um, is that my mother, who was from an immigrant family in in New York, in Brooklyn, in the tenements, you know, the whole garment district, which you see in all the photographs of that difficult era of poverty and uh, the beginning of, you know, the roots of so much culture in our country. She had grown up, you know, scraping pennies together to stand at the Met, which didn't cost very much, but it's even in her poverty and with her utter lack of educational opportunities, she knew that the best thing you could possibly do would be fill yourself with, with this much, you know, to go and look at art or to, to go and hear opera to go. I mean, maybe orchestras were possible for her. I don't know, but she always talked to me about standing in the old Met and we would listen to the, uh, Texaco radio broadcasts. Mm -hmm. And I was very much given the message that that was the path musically. And of course I was a serious pianist as a young person. So 
you know, there was that dichotomy again, not, and, and I found that difficult to negotiate once I really began to realize it. So it was almost like there was like music in the backyard and then, you know, kind of real music in the house. That was the, exactly. yeah. Exactly. And I've blogged, I've written about this a lot, blogged about it, but you know, we always ironed on Saturday afternoon in those Texaco music, uh, those Texaco broadcasts of opera live from the Met went on for decades. I mean, they were highly influential in reaching parts of the country that would have not had any access to so-called classical music. And they were very popular. They weren't something weird. You know, they were like, people couldn't wait for Saturday afternoon to roll around. But yes, that was kind of an example of a dichotomy that I'm sure I wasn't the only kid growing up with hillbilly guitar in the backyard and a, a mother or a father listening to the Met in the afternoons. Um, and this, this division is not helpful, I think, for us when we teach folk music to our children, although we can acknowledge it and probably ought to acknowledge it. Um, so there. <laughs> That's enough to spin on that, isn't it? But, if, but I think everybody feels that. It's just like you know, someone says, do you like art? Or you say, oh, do you like art museums or something? And they say, oh, blah, 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 blah. and then you say, do you like to go to crafts fair or, um, you know, or, or handiwork fairs or festivals? And they say, oh, I love that. You say, well, then you like art or you like going to an exhibit of art. It's just outdoors in the park, you know, or in a tent uh, and not in a building with pillars and lots of steps. Um, we have divided our folk art, our folk poems, our folk songs, in, and made them, you know, warm, friendly, fuzzy, appealing in our own minds. And then we, we stumble over the other, which we're not talking about today. But, but I think it's okay for families, parents to acknowledge this division. And, and I think, number one, not perpetuate it, if at all possible. Mm. Okay. Yeah. That's a great point. You know, it's funny. I was talking to my kids about Shakespeare the other day. We had started reading a play and, um, you know, they were talking about the language and it being hard to understand. And they said, well, you know, back in Shakespeare's day, did, did kids go to Shakespeare? And I said, well, I don't know for sure if they did or not, you know, they, they might have, but I tell you what, they definitely understood the language. It wasn't some, hoity-toity artsy thing, you know, they knew that was the language that they spoke. It was the language of the folks. Right, right. And uh, and they would have known the stories and they probably would have loved to be going, you know, to where the grown-ups got to go. Um, theater being the dynamic uh, force that it was up until very recently in Western culture. Yeah. So I think just because something is the art or the stories or the poems of the common people it doesn't mean it's uh, less valuable historically, I think is what you're, what you're telling us here. Yes. And, and, you know, really, if you really want to get into the, the nitty gritty, you will find, especially from the 20th century, but in the 19th century, in the 18th century, artists, composers, let's talk about composers, have valued folk music hugely. Um, there have been periods when some of the most important composers, I always like to give the example of the Hungarian Béla Bartók and Zoltán Kodály, who many people know through um, their pedagogical uh, publications in piano or the Kodály method of teaching singing. But anyway, these, these guys, and they were by no means the only ones, they're just kind of among the most famous, they trudge with those heavy gramophones on their back through the mud in, in what today would be Hungary and Romania and Bulgaria. I mean, these people were everywhere collecting the folk songs around 1900, 1904, 1906, 1910, because they knew the new modern world with telegraph 
and increasingly things like trains and telephones, ultimately, they were going to destroy the old ways. And indeed they did, in, in, except in the smallest, tiniest, most remote areas. So they were doing everything possible to capture folk music on the gramophone cylinders. And, and you know, that is incredible. I mean, when I think of all the incredible things that have gone on in our Western cultural landscape of the arts, that's almost it's got to be in the top five, that movement right around the turn of the 20th century to grab this living music, be it vocal or instrumental or vocal plus instrumental, and somehow save it and study it and, and codify it to a certain degree, but mostly analyze it and figure out how to notate it so it could be put into a written form in case that old gramophone technology fell apart, you know, and keep it in perpetuity and value it and use it as part of their own musical language. Okay, so let's step back for just one second here and tell me what exactly is a folk song? How do I know <laughs> when I've heard one? Well, now you have just gotten me there. I, that's, I, I always kind of try to go to the 60 mile mark and I forget to do the one and the five and the 10. Um, be glad you were never <laughs> in my university classes because boy, would I leave people wondering what I was talking about sometimes too. But the fun of it is that now that we've given all this, I think the definition will be very strong. And I'll give you a definition, not my definition, but one that was formulated in 1947. Now think about this, post-World War II, think of all the destruction of the Second World War, destruction of way of life, of resources, of population, all of the displacement. You can see why folk music would become even more important in the, the people who were thinking about culture, right? And something called the International Folk Music Council was founded in 1947. That was huge to do something like that. Um, sort of part of our global thinking, if you want to, if you want to think about that. And these were serious scholars, serious ethno, we would later call them ethnographic um, scholars. But at any rate, they started out to define a folk song or folk music. And here's what they said. And I will sort of quote that it is a product. Folk music is a product of a musical tradition that has evolved through the process of oral transmission. Just think mm -hmm. about that for a minute. Mm -hmm. That's the number one point. I have a second set of points and then we've got it. And I think what these, so it has come down to us as the music out on the back porch and in a way, you had books, you had books from your, from your, in your school when you learned the folk song, but you know, you wouldn't have needed those books if your teacher knew those songs, right? Mm -hmm. Oral transmission. That's the medium of folk music primarily. Do you like that? I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm going to give you three qualities that sort of help us identify a folk song. And again, you don't have to be limited by this, but I think they're useful. The first would be the fact that folk music has as a kind of aura or goal or feeling or byproduct or energy, whatever you like, to link the present with the past, hmm. which, you know, that's powerful thought. Mm -hmm. The second thing is that it sort of abounds in all kinds of variations because dependent upon who the individual or the group would be that is performing, singing, playing, plucking, fiddling the music. That variation is built in as a desired product, if you will. Hmm. And the third would be that the people who choose this music to play it, to hear it, to vary it, to transmit it, they are really uh, selecting it consciously. 
you know, there, it, it, there's a, va- there's a kind of an affection and a valuing and a treasuring of it. And think of the people, you know, that are at the fiddle festivals. Uh, think of the classical violinists who like to play it, the fiddle off the side, you know, it's a very different technique, right? Think about, um, people like classical singers, you know, like people, who, Thomas Hampson, there's a great example of a gorgeous and glorious singer in our, in, in, in recent decades who has, as his operatic massive career, you know, kind of waned to a certain degree, not because as you get older, I mean, he still sang a lot of roles, but one does get older. He began to turn to American folk song and sort of then started taking uh, these recitals all across the country, sponsored by the Library of Congress. And I do want to say a word about that and taking him to all kinds of places that would never have a Thomas Hampson, thank you, in their midst mm-hmm. and, and sort of making the message that this is our musical heritage and let's just jump in like, you know, it's caramel. Let's have some of it. Hmm. Okay. So I, I want to jump on something that you said right here, because we have been studying different world cultures and geography this year in our homeschool. And so one of the things that we have done is we have uh, been working on some memory work of, of different things from uh, different pieces from around the world. And so when it came time to uh, choose a piece of memory work for us to study for Australia, I chose Waltzing Matilda. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, my kids are like, oh, mom, why do we have to learn this? This is a little weird. This is very strange. And I, I looked at my son and I said, well, if you ever have an Australian girlfriend, you can completely <laughs> impress her and her family because they love this song. And my daughter's like, well, if I go stand in the middle of the street in Australia and start singing this song, will somebody sing with me? And I said, yes. <laughs> so That's maybe right. you can explain why they have such an affection for Waltzing Matilda. But it struck me when you said affection that, yeah, that's, I mean, this song is known uh, mm-hmm. throughout the world as kind of the unofficial anthem of Australia because the people have such an affection for it. Well, and it links the present to the past, doesn't it? Just to use these points. It does. It, it, it's variation. You could have somebody singing it at, a, at some kind of a national festival. You could have a little child singing it, you know, uh, walking through the woods. Every, uh, it, it's, everybody gets to have a folk song. Yeah. Nobody gets to claim, you know, the Juilliard String Quartet can claim the Bartok String Quartets that they might be able to play the better than anybody else or the Brahms or the, you know, in other words, the classical repertoire is not easy. It's, it requires loads and loads of training. It, it requires hours and hours of rehearsal as well it should. It's glorious beyond measure. But, you know, a three-year-old can't participate in it. A six-year-old can't clap, you know, walk and walk, walk and march to it. Everybody gets to have folk music. Oh, I love that. Okay, so wow, this is so you awesome. did the right thing. <laughs> Furthermore, folk tunes, and we could talk about it structurally. They are almost always, by nature, whether vocal or instrumental, attractive, limited in difficulty. Not that they, not that it's easy to pull the style off necessarily, especially at a high level. But the notes that are involved are um, they lie well in the voice, they lie in the hand. If you're playing a guitar or a mandolin or a banjo or ukulele, they are immediately accessible to the listener. And once you get waltzing material in your head, you do not lose it. You can't forget it, correct? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They're stuck. (laughs) It just a little bit. Okay, so we've talked about like what all folk songs have in common and what makes folk songs folk songs. But are there different kinds of folk music? Well, national, and that's another thing I love about them. I mean, Hungarian folk music is not going to hit or, or actually not necessarily homogenized 
not necessarily something you would hear in a in a show in a hotel in Budapest, you know, where it's all been turned into rather um, uh, great and wonderful. But if you actually get out in the boonies, if you get out in the boonies anywhere and hear people sitting on the front porches singing, you're not going to hear a polished vocal reproduction. You're not necessarily going to hear clean pitches because that part of what folk music is all about is is sliding in and out of the intonations. That's why people like Bart had to put it on gramophone cylinders and then ponder and tear their hair out for weeks trying to figure out how to make the limitations of our, our notation system, the do-re-mi system, the A-B-C-D-E-F-G system, the five lines and four spaces with one, two, three, four, or one, two, three. How in the world can something that limited encompass the extraordinary beauty, beauty and elaboration and decoration and, and, and color of an actual folk tune? And the answer is it can't. Uh, I can't show you this now, but you, it's fantastic to look at, especially that early 20th century crowd. They would write down the words, they would do their best to stick it into notation, and then they would try to make all these symbols, like twist this a little here, go up a little bit, half step here, push back here, a little ahead of the beat here, a little flat here, a little bit of uh, at it, you know, make make all these different sounds, which we can't write down. It has to be transmitted orally. So folk music you asked about different kinds is national. And if you really look globally, the folk music coming out of Thailand is not going to be like folk music coming out of West Virginia or Pennsylvania. Although you'd be surprised at some of the common themes when we start thinking about stories and texts and emotions. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. Can you give us an example of some, you know, widely different as far as national streams of folk music that have some common themes? Well, facts that will or facets i should say that play into it you would expect to find nature as a as a okay. key player because people if they live in the uh if they live in the rice paddies of of indonesia you know i'm just thinking you know, you know areas that flood with the flood with the seasonal floods you would expect that to come up in the folk songs right if mm-hmm. they're in uh, northern russia you would expect characters to be stumbling back after too much vodka in the snow with their broken hearts and freeze to death, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if it's coal mining country, you'd expect the hardships of the mines. And if it's uh, migrant farm workers in Southern California, or you would expect that to come up in the songs. If it's the gold rush, you know, or people dying in the desert trying to get to California, you'd expect that to come up. So the regional aspects to the nature and regional aspects and regional history are common in folk music. There's one set of examples. Okay. I love that. Oh, so why should families study folk songs as a genre of music? Hmm. Well, because it's okay. I could say something like, because it's wonderful in a story. <laughs> it's not quite enough though. First of all, it does link us to the past and it's a whole lot more fun for people than uh, maybe, I don't, you know, I mean, I live by straight history, you know, reading things about history, which when you get older is you can't get enough of, but yay for kids, you know, what would be more fun uh, having to learn, memorize the dates of the Erie Canal or to say, I got me a mule and her name is Sal, 15 miles on the Erie Canal. I think maybe it's 15 miles doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I mean, you want you want to picture that mule dragging that barge up river. You can either, uh, you know, of course, pictures help too. And we do have photographs of that period. We actually have, you know, photography. But the point is, it does what the written word cannot do. And it makes it memorable. And it makes it virtually impossible to forget. So there's one reason you want to teach history, teach it through folk music. 
I love it. Okay. You want another yeah. reason? No, that one's that one's fabulous. I'm sure you could give us like a big long list, but that one is that one is absolutely fabulous because I have some kids over here who, you know, history, they can take it or leave it. But um, I'm gonna have to dig into some of those folk songs and see what we can come up with to to help connect them a little bit to some of that historical content. Okay. Speaking of content, and you alluded to this when you were answering my question earlier. Some parents might have a little bit of concern about some of the uncomfortable or uh, themes. Adult, that are in adult themes. <laughs> yeah, adult <laughs> themes or even just, you know, there's a lot of death. <laughs> in oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, what do we do about that when we're approaching this with an okay. elementary age kid? Okay, well, you know, I wish you, I, I always wish we were always together, but I'm looking at a volume of, and I will answer, I promise. I always go off on rabbit paths. You know that about me. But the traditional tunes of the child ballads, four volumes, uh, probably about 300 actual folk tunes that were put together, again, in this period of this this rise of all these ethnomusic early, nobody called them ethnomusicologists back then, but interested scholarly people. And in the taking a song like Barbara Allen, Barbara Allen, which is a good example of death and sorrow and awfulness and misbehavior in terms of people not being very nice to each other and all of this. And I'm looking at this, a volume, which most people would not want to look at unless they really got, and here are 198 different versions. And I bet, and this was published a long time ago, there's probably 250 different versions versions of the Barbary Allen text in the Barbary Allen story. Really famous song, right? Really famous mm-hmm. melody. And it could start, in Scotland, I was born and bred. In Scotland, I was dwelling. Or it could be, in Scarlet Town, where I was born, there was a fair maid dwelling. Or it could be, it was the very, very, very month of May, and the green buds, they were swelling. We could find, you know, hundreds of different ways for the text to go. But the same thing kind of happens. Barbara Allen rejects him. And he dies of a broken heart, and then she feels really bad about it. (laughs) It doesn't matter where it is. And then she, you know, and some of them, she takes sick. On Monday morning, she took sick. Her heart was struck with sorrow. Mother, mother, make my bed, for I will dwell tomorrow. Poor Barbara Allen. Now, is this cheerful? Is this going to be Sesame Street cheerful? No. But here's what I think. First of all, kids, when they first learn the songs, they don't, not because they're not observant, but they're hearing words and melody, and they're not really thinking the stories through. So, for example, I sing a bunch of folk songs I did to my children. I'm really doing it to my grandchildren. I'm much more conscious about it. You know, hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Poor boy, you're going to die, right? You know, do you Mm -hmm. really sing that to your four-year-old? I do. Um, Because, first of all, what's going, look, contrast with that with popular culture. Think of what they see if they even even if you try to keep the pop culture out, try to keep the trailers from the horrible films out, if you go to see a family film and then everybody's blowing up buildings and dismembering superheroes or non-superheroes, I mean, what they're exposed to is so much worse, even in commercials, even in posters, even in t-shirts. It's so much more awful than anything you can find in a folk song. Would you, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Probably so. Yeah. And uh, so I think what one of the things I'm hearing you tell me is like there are so many versions out there. So if if you find a version that you're uncomfortable with, if you keep looking, one of the hundreds of versions. 
Yeah. Rewrite it. You know, make oh. Barbara Allen mend her ways and be nice to poor William. Uh, who cares? <laughs> they can, you know, I mean, I rewrite stuff. Don't don't we do that with other things sometimes until they're ready? But but I also do want to say that I think it's okay for, you know, now other parents may not feel this way. You you can rewrite it. You can rewrite as much as you want of it. Guess what? It's oral transmission. It links us with the past. It is changed by variation, right? Okay. Very so individual performer. You're just doing what folk music does. You're just altering it because of your own situation. You're right in the middle of the stream, right? Okay. So now you're you're not only singing folk songs, but you're kind of taking part of what folk songs are all about. You are. You are. And I would say, and I don't even, I, I, I wondered when I knew we were going to do this together, should I even give this example? Because I don't want to get anybody too mad at me. But um, you know, around here, I don't know how this got started. It got started with my daughter when she was probably about 10 or 12. And now it's all over with the grandchildren. But Somehow, you know this tune. Yeah. What shall we do with the drunken sailor? Yeah. Right. Early in the morning. Okay. I totally love that melody, and we. It just has become part of our life. We do it when somebody's knocked over half a gallon of milk. We do it when somebody dropped a dozen eggs. We <laughs> we go to that when somebody you know just walked through that that we just clean the floor and somebody's just come through with awful shoes or when, you know, someone needed to go somewhere and someone already took the car and well, you can either rail and get angry, which I'm not saying we don't do that. Or you can just shrug your shoulders and say, what can you do with a drunken sailor? What can you do with a drunken sailor? Right. Right. In the morning. And guess what? You're less mad when you do that because the fact is you can't do a doggone thing about it. And so you might as well laugh and go to plan B. And so, you know, ordinarily, I wouldn't say, okay, children, we're now going to learn a folk song today about a drunken sailor. You know, <laughs> no, it doesn't really have anything to do. I mean, it does. I'm sure if I knew all the, hey, hey, up, she rises. The kids don't care. Okay, you don't want them bursting out in Sunday school with that necessarily, <laughs> right? But you also don't want them telling them that mommy has two different socks on and you know, is, is wearing her bedroom slippers because she can't find, you know, you don't want to, so you tell, hey, don't sing this everywhere or whatever. I think you can manage all that. And maybe I'm sort of making light of it, but I do think for the kids, it's rhythm, it's tune, it's text as in sound. And the sadness of it is mature, helps you mature. I mean, nothing wrong with some truth, right? Right, and, right. And the parts that are off color, and then I want to say another word about that, but or that are, I mean, drunken sailor, that does not that seem pretty innocent right now. You know, you can just either ignore or enjoy, or you could, you know, you could say, what can you do with a little lost puppy? What can you do with a little lost puppy? You can do anything you want with it. Okay. I think, yeah, I think that works. And I think you've given uh, people some really good ideas. And, and you're right. I mean, and my kids would have known very early on that you don't go to Sunday school and sing about a drunken sailor. I mean, they just intuitively know those kinds of things for the most part. So, uh, yeah, I love it. Pam, I, I do think there is an issue in this current climate, which we're in, which is a very interesting time in American political history and in American culture in general. A lot, I mean, a lot of these songs are very old. They come from a time where much of what some songs would be talking about would definitely be what we would say politically incorrect. Right. And sometimes politically incorrect, we could say, oh, give me a break. I can't go here anymore. But sometimes you do have to think about it. Yeah. And then that's where I would say rewrite, ladies and gentlemen. We've done that already with a lot of songs. Rewrite. The times they are changing. So rewrite. Uh, 
And later on, kids can learn the history of those tunes or texts if they want to. But I do think you have to think about it in that respect, just for everybody's, I don't know, peace of mind, let's call it that. Yeah. And I think there's a huge difference between, uh, you know, singing a song about a drunken sailor, because I, what I would tell my kids is you, you never want to sing anything that's going to hurt someone. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't meet a whole lot of drunken sailors on the road. <laughs> Not anymore, not unless you live in coastal towns. <laughs> yeah, so that one's probably not going to hurt anybody's feelings. So you want to make sure, you know, but so there's definitely a place for that. You're you're exactly right. Um, and I think it's easy to know the difference between the two different situations. Yeah. So, well, okay. So I'm a homeschool mom and I am looking to include some folk songs in my homeschool and maybe in my morning time. I think morning time is a great time to do this. So what's the easiest way for me to start? And do you have any specific ones that you think every child should learn? Oh, I should really work on a list on that. And then everybody could disagree with it. You know, they say that's the important thing. You know, your top 20 compositions and then everybody is invited to completely to disagree. That's the best. That's the best fun of all. Um, I would say the first thing is that you sing them. But a lot, we are in a non-singing culture. And I know I've talked about that with your audiences before. Mm -hmm. People aren't comfortable singing in the United States of America anymore and haven't been for about two generations, if not three. Um, Our grandparents did. My grandparents did. I mean, everybody, you go around the world, people just burst into song. I I have to, I don't want to tell stories. We don't have time for stories. I have to tell you, I was with one of my Smithsonian groups on the island of Hvar off the coast of Croatia this past summer. And it was a Sunday morning tour. We got up and we took, I don't know, we went up this crazy mountain and we came down on the coast on the other side. And it was about two o'clock in the afternoon. And the little cafes were filled. It had been the first communion Sunday, right? So all the little kids were the little girls and the boys. They were in these the boys were in suits and the little girls were in white dresses. But it was a beautiful summer evening and they were all running around and showing each other their little gifties and they were on skateboards. It's kind of incongruous in a way. And the families were on these porches eating lunch you know, enjoying things. They had guitar. They were singing like a trained choir. And some people come joined in for a few minutes. Not us. Obviously, we didn't know how to do that. But uh, those songs. And but my group was mesmerized because it looked like something staged in a Hollywood movie. Only it wasn't. Hmm. You see, this is what this group did on Sunday afternoons, probably for two to three hours. For well, there's not a lot else going on in that town. But that's not the point. You know, so. We aren't a singing culture anymore. We don't sing at home very much. We are so electrified. We are so digitized. We got those earbuds stuck in our ears. Might as well stitch them in, you know. So I would say sing. And you say, but I don't have a good voice. Come talk to me about that. That's a different podcast. Maybe we've had it. Maybe we should have it. Everybody can sing. If you can speak, you can sing. You might not like how you sound. You may not feel comfortable. You may not feel confident. You may need some help. Help is on the way. But um, you can sing. And your child doesn't know that you don't like to sing until you tell them. So first I'd say sing. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. Just sing and maybe just, but if you really can't do that or after you've done that, one thing I like to do, and I don't like to be on the screens, and I'm the meanie grandma about, about screen time and I'm railing against it, but if it's specific, as we all know, it can be a marvelous tool. So you could take a song like Barbie Allen or you could take a song like, uh, I'll get off the drunk and say a lot, okay? But you could take a folk song like Parsley, Sage, Rosemary, and Time, which has become a, which was a folky tune, as I re- if I recall correctly. You could take, oh, I can't, suddenly I can't think of any of them, but you know, all the old ballads, you could take any kind of folk song, uh, Pete Seeger's songs, you could take children's songs, and then 
you can say, okay, for like, let's pick, I'm going to find you, you can look in advance, three versions of this that are very different. And then if you choose, if you may have records, you may have CDs, that's, that's terrific. But a lot of people don't have that resource anymore. Or you may be part of this huge move now that's moving back to the LP, the, the record, the, you know, the right thing that goes around with a needle. Uh-huh. Uh, I can't believe how they've come back. In, in Europe, you see more of those in CDs now in the stores. Oh, People wow. Yeah, I mean, I love it. I just love it. I had a conversation with a gal in, um, in, in Prague, and she had this whole stack of albums she just bought. And I said, albums? She said, well, of course. Why would I buy a CD? And I thought, okay, I love it. She said, these, and the pictures are so great and all the information, they sound so much better. But the point being, if you get on eBay, you can find, or maybe in your local thrift store or used bookstore, lots of LPs. You might be able to haul your grandmother's turntable out of the uh, you know, suitcase record player. But there are, you can do it through recordings. Some of these Smithsonian collections, I said I wanted to get into Library of Congress and Smithsonian. They were the real preservers of folk songs in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Those resources are available online. You can listen to these old, tiny, tiny people, long, long dead, singing these tunes, playing these tunes, fiddle tunes, banjo tunes, you know, old quartets, barbershop tunes. There are so many resources and you could pick, I would say, two or three very different versions. And then the kids can talk about it, you know, and say, well, why would someone want to sing this in an operatic style? And, well, you know, do you like it better as a fiddle by itself? Or do you like it better with the guy hitting on the trash can top, you know, and on the, uh, with the, or the hammered dulcimer? Or then you're doing a, sort of a type of musical, com- comparative musical analysis. And you, your kids may be too little for that, but they won't be too little to listen to it in very different media. Right. And, and just to, to listen to the differences. I mean, any age child can talk about the differences they hear between this version and that version. Um, and so I think that's a, a wonderful way to get them started. Yes. And, and invite someone else to sing. Or the next time, if you have a comfortable gathering, maybe you get with your neighbors or some family members, instead of doing, I don't know, if, if, you, if you have a game tradition, if you have, you know, try, yes, it's awkward the first few times you do it. Anything is awkward the first few times we try to resurrect traditions, right? And we've lost so many of them. But you'd be surprised what happens. Here's what I find happens with kids. Sometimes we do stuff and, we, and we're not sure it's very successful and it's yeah, yeah, yeah. And we don't know if we want to try it again. And everybody looked at you funny. And, and then you hear from your kids or the neighbor kids, that was so cool. Mm-hmm. That was so cool. Can we do that again? You, you've had that experience. Yes. Oh, yeah. And as many complaints as I got about Waltz and Matilda, they're still <laughs> singing it. So, <laughs> you know. Yes, they are. They and, complain and, out of one side of their mouth and sing out of the other. So secretly, I think they actually do enjoy it. Oh, that's a good image. I like that. I'm borrowing that. Do you mind? No, not at all. <laughs> and not at all. all marry, they're all going to marry Australians, right? <laughs> <laughs> they might. They might. Um, at the very least, they'll impress them. So, well, other than the Library of Congress, uh, it, do you have any other great rec- uh, resources that you would recommend for folk songs? Well, I would really look at the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian, not because they're fancy, but because they're rich and because they are our tax dollars at work, if you will. Remember, the Library of Congress is our national library. And we forget that. It's our national library. And they digitized things before, uh, while other people were trying to spell digitize. Okay. (laughs) And I think you'd be really impressed with the collections. And um, there's something called the American Memory Project. I refer that in our our courses on American arts and culture. I send students to look at some of those items because they have not just preserved 
codified, well, I keep saying codified, I don't mean to say it, uh, except I, I should say more organized, analyzed, but, but preserved primarily and made accessible. The whole treasury of, of American and not just American folk music, but in Canadian folk music. And they have, you know, folk music from, from political folk music, political tunes from different elections in the 19th century. Remember, they, you know, the line wasn't there. So a folk tune could become a campaign tune. And we forget mm-hmm. that before our modern era, people had campaign songs, you know, not some rock band that they pay a bajillion dollars to, to use their uh, song on a digital smashy board with a bunch of stuff exploding off of it. We're talking about songs that became their theme songs on the campaign trail. And that has a quality of folk song today. Oh, wow. Just a fascinating conversation, Professor Carroll. I Thank you so much for coming on here. And I am going to totally take you up on coming back again in the future to talk about those moms who think they can't sing and uh, give us some tips for that one. We would absolutely love that. I would like to do that because I think if we understand better how it's happened, it's easier to to stop. It's kind of like taking off something you don't want to wear. Just Mm. throw it to the side and start over with something you do feel comfortable with. And I think that can be done. And I think it's something we need to, we need, not we need to do, but it's good to do. It's liberating to do. Yeah. Yeah. Find some freedom in there and uh, realize that we have some abilities maybe that uh, have grown a little uncomfortable, but they're still there. So they are, Pam. Thank you for giving so much to your audiences. You just, you, you just, you bring them so many wonderful inspirations and resources. Well, only because people like you keep agreeing to come back. So uh, (laughs) uh, tell everybody where they can find you online. Oh, it's at professorcarol.com. All right. ProfessorCarol.com, where you can learn all kinds of history through many different wonderful pieces of music, uh, including folk songs. So thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And there you have it. Now, if you would like links to any of the resources that Professor Carol and I chatted about today, you can find them on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Also on the show notes for this episode of the podcast are our wonderful new podcast downloads. You do not want to miss these downloads. And soon we're going to have them for every single episode of the podcast going all the way back to episode one. These downloads include transcripts, timestamps, questions and action items, and some of the best little tidbits pulled out for you in quotable little chunks. And if there's a basket bonus for that episode, we include that as well. So head on over to pambarnhill.com forward slash YMB. 70 to access the show notes and all the wonderful goodies for this episode. Now, I'll be back again in a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking all about nature study hacking with Joy Cherick. It's a great conversation. I learned some new things in that one, too. So do come back and join us then. Until then, keep seeking truth, goodness, and beauty in your homeschool day.